Okay, so now we're officially starting. Thank you for uh, your patience, everyone, as we um, just did the logistics of getting the stream shared to various groups. So my name is Seth Bitzkan. I'm the co-founder with my colleague, Carl Tiedemann of Soil for Climate. We advocate for soil as a climate solution. And we're very happy to sort of launch what we're calling Soil for Climate TV with our first guest, Russ Conser. Oh. We are so delighted to have him here. Russ, just give a quick uh, to everyone. And, um, and so let me just give a quick um, introduction and explain, you know, why Russ is with us today to, to help kick off our series. Um, in addition to being the visionary with words and science, to, he came up with the phrase, it's not the cow, it's the how. And that sort of says it all about the role of grazing and, and ruminants as a soil and a climate solution. And, and we thank you for that. And he is also now the founder of a company called Blue Nest Beef, Blue Nest, N-E-S-T, and the profound um, innovation of this company is that all of the meat will be sourced from ranchers that are participating in the Audubon Society Conservation Ranching Program. So the Audubon Society one of the world's leading environmental groups already has a program that they call conservation ranching, which is ranching in a way to restore grasslands. And they actually monitor the bird populations there. And so every rancher who is certified already through the Audubon Society is now suitable to be a, um, um, a, a provider for, um, let me just check something. Yeah. For, um, for, for Russ, uh, Russ Concert's company, Blue Nest Beef. So um, when, when you're supporting his product, you're also supporting the ranchers who are doing their job to keep healthy uh, rangeland. And that's also supporting the Audubon Society because they wanna use this as a way to, uh, to monitor bird populations. And then of course, there's a proxy there, what's good for rangelands and what's good for birds is, is good for soil, is good for climate. So that's, that's the extension of the theme. And then of course, eventually they will start measuring soil carbon. And, uh, and this will in fact be um, a way of testing uh, the theory uh, of ranching as a drawdown solution. So Russ, now why don't we hand it off to you? Oh, and also friends, please you know, ask questions in, in the comment section and Russ and I will be monitoring them and we'll get to questions as soon as possible. So Russ, uh, uh, let's hand it off to you and, and tell folks about what sort of was your background that got you interested in, in, in ranching as a climate solution in general, but then particularly in your new venture, uh, Blue Nest Beef. Sure. When you were talking there, Seth, it uh, reminded me, and I don't think I invented it. I know I didn't invent it, and I don't think uh, Audubon invented it, but there's an, another nice little saying is what's good for the herd is good for the birds. Um, and um, I think that applies as well. So um, yeah, Russ Concer, uh, actually originally an engineer by education, uh, grew up in the Midwest in the farm states, but fell in love with energy many, many years ago as a child of the 70s and long gasoline lines and oil embargoes and um, felt that that's where the center of the universe was. So uh, as many people in this group knew, know, I uh, spent 30 years in oil and gas at Shell. And um, Early on, first half of that career, um, mostly focused on exploring and producing oil and gas all around the world. Um, and, and then uh, through serendipity, really uh, made a big transition in the mid 90s into corporate venturing. So investing in energy technology companies and ended up leading Shell's angel stage breakthrough energy technology investment group called Game Changer where it was a, a sincere joy to invest in the science and technology and entrepreneurs and scientists doing radical things with energy for the future. A part of that was interesting carbon sequestration. And frankly, that was a frustrating angle because uh, the laws of thermodynamics weren't in our favor for very many things. And um, uh, my life took another serendipitous turn in 2013 when I happened to be at TED when Alan Savory gave his now famous talk um, and I heard this audacious claim about carbon sequestration in soil um, by changing how we manage cattle. Um, it just so happened that my applied field in engineering 
in the earliest days of oil and gas was uh, the sensors and models for measuring and quantifying carbon in the deep earth. And so shortly after that, um, I went looking for data to try to support or refute the allegation or claim that soils could sequester carbon. And I still remember um, kind of in a JFK type moment where I was, what I was doing and what I was <clears throat> looking at when I got the first data set from Regenerative uh, Ranch. It happened to be some data from um, my now friend, Christine Jones in Australia and Colin Sizes Ranch. But I immediately recognized the soil that was rich in organic matter and carbon had a quantity and distribution of organic matter that looked very much like the source rocks that had produced the oil and gas in the first place. And to me, that was kind of a profound aha. Um, and, and so early on, I was mostly focused in the science of um, regenerative agriculture and kind of dabbling um, in the community. And as I started spending time with farmers and ranchers, really started to appreciate how at an operating level, um, uh, quite a range of folks were beginning to figure out how to make it work at their um, at their local level. And the question that started to grow in my mind was how can we make this bigger? How can we grow it? How can we scale it up? So it's quite a long journey. Um, I'll save you most of the details, but the pieces started to fall into place for good about a year ago. Uh, the National Audubon Society, who had done some work with um, in, in the context of conservation ranching, their program had started mature at the time, was about 300,000 acres subscribed into the program already, um, and a recognition that they were on course to not only um, aggregate a, a fairly decent sized supply, but really an appreciation of, as Seth said, the National Audubon Society is one of the world's largest, oldest, and most respected conservation groups, um, that they had a trusted brand in the marketplace um, that consumers could understand. And um, one of the phrases that I've learned from them is that birds are both the treasure and the measure for um, ecosystems. So Audubon entered into the grassland conservation perspective or ranching program with the perspective of uh, grassland birds being highly endangered, who do we need to work with that manages most of the grasslands? It's the ranchers. So how do we implement ranching protocols um, that create uh, better bird habitat? And it just so happens it's the same holistic management, regenerative agriculture protocols um, that many in this community might be familiar with. So um, realize that there was a really strong overlap in that system and that the skills um, in, in our team, which is, Todd Churchill, myself, uh, Bill Godfrey and Alan Williams working together. Um, the other three guys, very deep and, and, and wise and experienced grass-fed beef entrepreneurs, um, figuring out how to, how to put a business around this. We said, well, we kind of, we know how to do the middle. If, if you have a bunch of consumers who already understand Audubon and you have a bunch of ranchers that are already in the program, if we can build the system to buy that beef, process that beef, ship that beef and, um, th then we may be able to work together to do something here. So that's where Blue Nest Beef was born. Um, we're uh, now a, we just launched a few weeks ago, a, a business to bring 100% grass-fed beef from a bird-friendly land certified by the National Audubon Society, direct to consumers' doorsteps nationwide. So uh, in that, we're trying to make the right thing, the easy thing. So Seth, I'm not sure how you want to do that. That's probably enough introduction. Um, do you want to look at a couple of the slides or? Uh, okay, that, okay, that's fine. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm back in, sure. in this. Out on us here. Uh, Russ, let me ask you to um, uh, try to look actually toward the camera. You know, try to, yeah, there, there you go. You know, try to envision your. All right, because you're over here. But yeah, never mind me, you know, look look to the camera because that's where your community is. And I'm a little green light at the top of my computer. You know, otherwise I'm looking down toward you and then other, other people to see the top of my head. So um, uh, 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 tell us um, just a little bit more just quickly about your, your vision for Blue Nest Beef. You know, what, wh what do you see happening both in terms of the business, but in terms of its impact on like, um, uh, you know, the Audubon Society and this is sort of this whole movement. And then we'll show the slides that you were talking about. Well, I think with Blue Nest Beef, what we're trying to do is make the right thing the easy thing. Um, if regenerative agriculture is all we think it can be, is how do we make it convenient for consumers 
to um, find beef that's been genuinely produced regeneratively and can fit their busy lifestyles. Um, I'm a really big believer in the power of business um, and that can be a good power or bad power, but I certainly come out of the energy industry where uh, when the entrepreneurs started to figure out how to build um, everything from wind farms and solar farms to electric cars um, to package them in products that consumers want to buy. So from our perspective, we want to deliver to your doorstep amazing beef with great flavor and deep nourishment, but with bigger meaning. So we call it um, better beef with a bigger purpose. Um, and uh, a part of that vision is reconnecting people to the food system. So through nourishing tasty food, that's doing something tangible like recreating bird habitat, we hope to engage consumers in a new story about food that's been produced in a way that has a bunch of other good benefits uh, for the land as well. Sequestering carbon, increasing water infiltration, restoring farmer livelihoods, these kind of things um, that are the collective benefits of regenerative agriculture. So I know this group um, is, is heavily focused on climate and carbon, but regenerative agriculture um, can make a big difference there and in, in many other things too. So um, that, that's how we see our role anyway. Okay, Russ, thank you so much. Um, so let's look at some of these slides now. Um, uh, tell me again, which was the first slide, the one with the, the, the bird? Bird on the pyramid, yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna just put that up and then uh, remove me and then you'll. Great. So, um, I do, and Seth and I just, um, go ahead and make, there you go, make it a little bigger. Side by side's good, Seth, if you wanna do that, just so we can see it. Uh, there you go, like that. Um, so several people will probably recognize the frequently used little food pyramid in the middle there from um, this uh, James Norty paper that we all understand that in the soil, there's a, a web from the microbe to the macrobe, um, if you will. But even in the picture that comes from the original paper, you see a bird sitting on the top. I've replaced it with a more colorful bird to represent that the bird is effectively an ecological sensor of a healthy soil system. Now we understand that really what's going on is there's a complex interaction between that photosynthesizing plant and its roots. It's exchanging sugar for minerals through the soil system. And then the important role of livestock at the top, who's using some of that plant material that's been grown and sending some of those nutrients back from manure, it's effectively operating like a pump. Um, in, in the picture there to make that whole system work. So the, the bird's not only a participant, but it's a, it's a visible, noticeable size. And I would say um, that, that if I were a scientist, I couldn't invent a more perfect sensor for a healthy ecosystem than, than birds because birds vote with their wings. So if there's a healthy ecosystem over here, the birds will find their way to it and tell you that it's healthy by their presence. So go to the next slide. So you can get this to work. Seth, there we go. Might have to go through a, a two-step process. Nope. The next, the, the other one, the pie chart one. So uh, many people may have no noticed here that uh, in September, there was a major paper out of Cornell called The Decline of uh, North American Avifauna. Um, and a lot of people didn't recognize it. The high level story was that we've lost somewhere between two and a half and three billion birds in the last 50 years. Um, but an overlooked part of the story for many people was grassland birds had experienced the largest loss of any population. So just over 50% of grassland birds uh, have been lost from uh, North American grasslands um, in just under 50 years. And 74% of the species have experienced decline. Um, this is really kind of our why, if you will. Um, because that the driver of this, we now know from separate research, um, is industrial agriculture. It's the destruction of habitat, the use of pesticides um, in, in, a, in, a, in an industrial farming system that's really just made it hard on birds. So it's kind of the, the proof that if, if the prior slide demonstrated to you that the bird is a sensor, the, what I would say is this slide tells us that the birds are telling us that the system isn't working. So uh, next slide then, Seth. There we go. 
Um, and so the Audubon uh, Conservation Ranching Program is embedded in this Audubon Certified Bird-Friendly Land Seal that you see in the upper left. It's now got 1.8 million acres enrolled. Um, those are all the little dots you see around the country. It's focused on the Central Flyway, which uh, most people would recognize as the Great Plains of the United States, the, the really intense grasslands of the past. Um, it's a program that itself focuses on four categories um, in order to be certified habitat management, forage and feeding, animal health and welfare, and environmental sustainability. Um, included in the forage and feeding system and habitat management system is, is uh, are these grazing protocols um, that many people in this group will be familiar with of uh, mimicking the dense herds of roaming bison with frequent movement at high densities and not coming back to the same place very often. But specific to the Audubon uh, thing here is additionally, each ranch has a four purpose written habitat management plan that an Audubon staff member will write for that ranch to help you identify target bird species and what you can do with your land uh, to get into it. So, um, and then Blue Nest Beef is basically then sits alongside this as a direct your door subscription business. Um, we just started delivering our first boxes three weeks ago. Those box, the, the sourcing from those, for that first uh, tranche of beef came from three ranches in South Dakota. I put a picture of Jeannie Francis. I don't know if Jeannie, if you happen to be online, um, is uh, about 80, a little more than 80% of the first cattle came from Jeannie's place when we picked them up in mid-September. So this is how we're getting started um, to try to make it easy for people to get access to regenerative beef coming from America's grasslands. All right, that's that's the short story. So let's go back to uh, conversation and your questions, Seth, and from anybody else. Oh, okay, Russ, uh, thank, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Let me also uh, bring in my colleague, Carl, here. Um, let me take this slide down and bring Carl in. I have to unmute him. And, and there's Carl. Let me just change the in here a little bit. And there you go. Carl, uh, yeah, speak up a little bit. You're a little hard to hear. And um, um, do you have a follow-up question for, for Russ? Sure. A question that comes up a lot is how does the carbon actually get into the soil? You know, what, what are the mechanisms? Uh, what, what is it that the cows do that in, improve uh, the soil health? And I guess a follow up would be what is the potential of this practice in terms of how much carbon it sequesters uh, locally, annually, globally uh, and so on? <clears throat> well, let's take the, the first part. Um, I illustrated it on that first slide. We don't need to go back to it. Um, so let me just describe it um, verbally. It's a very complex process, of course, of all life interacting together. But the core of it is the process of plants with roots sharing sugars with microbes in exchange for nutrients. Um, and that process of root exudation um, uh, builds that soil microbiology in a way that it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and and there's, there's other pathways through plant litter, through manure. Those tend to be shorter carbon cycles where respiration sends more of that back into the atmosphere as CO2, but they definitely play a part in the system. But it's a root exudative process that, that builds uh, soil carbon. In terms of um, the potential, um, there's the paper that I think y'all have shared uh, many times. I'm a co-author on it there with Richard Teague and Raton Lal and some of your other friends of uh, uh, the potential for ruminants to um, uh, sequester carbon in North American agriculture. And, you know, we're in the gigaton plus range in just North America in terms of potential. Um, it's... Um, but but I would I would say that it's highly uncertain. I think you know the research is continuing to evolve. On the one hand, it seems quickly. On the other hand, I know a lot of people are impatient for more on how fast can we sequester carbon. I think we know enough to be able to say that the numbers are significant. So citing that 2016 Journal of Soil and Water Conservation paper um, for that. Um, but exactly how much and what ecosystems and how fast and how does it play out over time, we don't really know yet. 
Um, certainly increased attention to this category of nature-based solutions. I think the, um, the overarching consensus at the moment is that the, the grazing piece is significant and worthy of further research, but we don't have enough data on it yet to document it very rigorously. So that doesn't mean we um, should shy away from it or anything else like that. It's just more research um, that we can need to continue to do to document the full potential over time. So some of the folks here will be familiar. Um, I'm involved with another project. Um, Seth, I think you often call it the Soil Carbon Cowboys Project. This is led by Peter Bick and Richard Teague. We're measuring a range of properties on ranches in the southeast United States, and that's just going to be one more step in that bigger picture. So, um, hey, hey, uh, Russ. Um, actually, while you were talking, I I grabbed the graph. So let me bring it up, and if you could just speak to it briefly, I'll um take Carl and I out of the screen for a minute. Okay because this, this really is sort of the graph to talk to, uh, just for a minute at least. Yeah, so this chart says, uh, what's the net greenhouse gas emission um, for carbon sequestration for North American agriculture? Um, and the little bars, if I remember, is 25, 50, and 100%, yep, on uh, column three, four, and five. Um, it was originally in response to um, an, an article that said, well, we need to just reduce ruminants in order to save the climate. And our proposition was, hey, if you do the math differently, um, we can actually graze ruminants differently. So I'm gonna walk you through from left to right. One is the base case. This is what's a, a general estimate of the net footprint of North American agriculture and carbon emissions. Um, and the ruminant wedge is uh, the green thing at the top. And so um, bar two is North American agricultural um, emissions with, um, uh, if we cut ruminants in half, so you see the smaller green bar. And I guess I should point out the blue bar is uh, cropping. Um, the uh, red bar is, um, uh, soil erosion, something that's often not accounted for, and then the green bar is livestock production. So then when we go to three, four, and five, that's basically if we could implement uh, regenerative grazing practices and no-till agriculture on 25%, 50%, and 100% of North American grasslands. And that's where I said we'd get up to that. If we could implement it on 100% American grasslands, we'd get a little over a gigaton of carbon per year potential um, out of North American agriculture. So, I, back I rather bringing myself back in here for a bit. So, just to to to, to a quick summary, um, what's going on in bar five for people to understand? That's a negative. That's a drawdown. Uh, right. The 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 middle line there is is zero, or you know net uh, yeah. net zero. And so one and two are net emissions. Three, four, and five are net drawdown. You know that's sort of the point you want people to get there, right. and and then and the the total drawdown here is about one point seven. Um, I'm sorry, about one point three. One point two, actually. Look, I, I look at this chart, and I made this on my computer about four years ago, <laughs> and, and then we published it. And I'm like, damn, I really I didn't do a good job formatting the chart. So I know um, it, it's. I think it's formatted perfectly. It's very clear <laughs> to me. What's going on here? Uh, for just but the takeaway to folks, uh, bar number five is a one point two or one point three gigatons. That's billions of tons of carbon, not CO two equivalent, but of carbon right. itself, drawdown right. in soil just in North America, using uh, what they call conservation grazing, regenerative grazing, amp grazing, holistic plan grazing, and uh, and conservation cropping. So, Correct, which was basically no-till agriculture. Okay, no-till agriculture. So that's really the takeaway from this is bar number five. And um, uh, the paper, uh, can you just quickly, again, give the, the title of this paper? Um, I can pull it up if you want. I have it. The Role of Ruminants. Uh, uh, the Such an academic title. Ruminants in Reducing Agriculture's 
carbon footprint in North America. There you go. Teague et al. 2016. So I, I really consider that a seminal paper, and and uh, it's an honor really to to, to talk to you, um, who who is a co-author on it. Now uh, we do have some questions, so let's get to them. Um, let's um, let's take this down and let's go to some of the questions. Um, um, Gary McDougal says, "What brings the birds back?" Question mark. Worms? Question mark. Other insects? Question mark. Hey, Gary. Um, yeah. So worms and other insects are a key part of it. So for insectivores, birds that eat insects, if there's no insects there because we've killed them all and there's nowhere for them to live, there's nothing to eat. Worms, obvious. Uh, the thing that maybe people don't think about that turns out to be really important interface between grazing and bird populations is habitat structure. So if you kind of just imagine looking out into a traditional pasture or a crop field, it's pretty even and flat. Um, whatever it is, it's all of that one thing. Um, birds, some like it short, some like it tall. Sometimes they like it short at some time of year. And sometimes, you know, when they're nesting, they need a good place to hide in some thick grass but in the rest of the year, maybe not so much. And so this dynamic grazing pattern of animals moving around an ecosystem in time creates this integrated mosaic of different vegetation that's highly diverse and highly um, different structures that allows um, bird habitat to basically be recreated. And, and once again, I mean, you can it's fairly easy to imagine now how grassland birds um, you know, co-evolved with grasslands, which means grasslands and grazers, and so why that would be true. And so really with the dynamics of biodiversity, we just help recreate that. Okay, thank you. Um, I need to bring myself back in to ask the question. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, James Buttrup has a question. Does pastor poultry have a detrimental effect on wild bird populations. And, um, and, and Russ, just real quick, if I could ask you again to try to talk into the into the camera and not look, it really makes so much difference for the- Yeah, I'll try. It's really hard to stare at a green light when your face is over here. And yourself, it doesn't, it's not, but, um, it's about the people out yeah, there. I know, if, I, if there was a real camera up here, I'd just get this yeah, tiny spot up there. It's the- All right. Um, but um, we don't know the answer to that, but I would guess not, at least in the right context. I think pastured poultry production is something that we still are early on and exploring. And there's some great um, pioneers doing great stuff. Paul Grieve and the folks at Pasture Bird in California doing, uh, you know, the movable houses at a large scale, love what they're doing. But at the other end of the spectrum, good friend, uh, Reginaldo Haslett Marroquin uh, with Three Range Chicken in Minnesota has a system uh, that uses fixed houses and moves birds between pastures that are in tiered canopies of forests. And I mean, I've learned a lot by spending some time with Rehi, uh, visited his farm this summer and begin to appreciate that um, chicken production under tiered uh, agroforestry can simultaneously create a safer habitat and a healthier habitat for chicken production and possibly also bird production or, or bird, um, wild bird populations as well. And I've, I've tested that um, with one of my uh, eco ecological friends, Steve Applebaum, many people here will know him. And, and he goes, absolutely, you know, you can have those things coexist, but I don't know that anybody's documented it yet. Um, and I, I'm not sure that, um, you know, probably when we get there, it'll it'll create some sort of identity crisis for Audubon to have a, a bird eating business sitting underneath a, a a wildlife habitat bird creation business. But um, for for now, the Audubon focus is on grassland birds, um, and and for that, um, you know, we haven't had to, had to worry about that yet. So, um, I, I just want to add something to that. Um, I, this is the first time I heard the question asked specifically about birds. And uh, you know, uh, domestic ch chickens and 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 wild birds. Uh, it, it's typically asked in terms of um, cattle and wild ruminants, like in Africa, um, you know, with the wild um, buffalo, or or you know, uh, in the U.S. with the bison. And it's always posed as, as a conflict, but but it's never it's never a conflict. It's always actually just the opposite. 
Well, it's a synergy and you just have to understand the synergy. The one thing we can say about pastured poultry production, I think with pretty high confidence is, and, and most pastured poultry folks will know that, is that the process of having a, a movable chicken system where you're getting new, high concentration nutrients moving around can be one of the fastest ways to bring fertility back to your soil. Chickens are amazing nutrient cyclers, right? So they're constantly eating and pooping and they're, they're really, really good. They can, if you have some really degraded soil and if you can manage your uh, chickens in a way to get them around that soil quickly, it can be a really important part of regenerating soil health. That much we know. All right, well, well let's hear it for the chickens. Um, let me bring in Carl now, because he has a question he wants to ask you. Um, now let me unmute him. Okay, Carl, you should be in and I'll remove myself. All right. Well, the, the first question is uh, just a, a fun question, which is how much carbon do uh, Thanksgiving turkeys sequester? I, I, I don't, I've never done the math on how much it would be. Uh, probably not a lot. Although I, I'm proud to say I bought my, uh, each year I buy my family's turkeys from Joyce Farms, um, which is um, Ron Joyce and the folks over in the Carolinas do great work in regenerating pastures. So I don't know how much carbon Ron is capturing in the process of producing my turkey, but I'll bet he's doing a heck of a lot more than the industrial CAFO turkey place. So um, I eat tasty bird with um, with with a uh, clean conscience. Excellent. Um, the my serious question uh, concerns uh, the issue of carbon um, saturation in soil. I know some of the reservations that are brought up about natural sequestration methods revolve around, you know, what happens. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you've seen from the research and what, what do you think long-term uh, the uh, the saturation aspects are. And, and this may tie into James uh, Brocktrup's question as well. How do you determine if you have reached peak biological density in soil? I, I imagine at some level, um, <coughs> the carbon and the biological, the life issues are related. So. Um, yeah, I mean, um, in a lot of ways, <clears throat> what you're doing with a um, um, carbon building is you're building that amount of carbon, which allows that ecosystem to maximize its capture of solar energy. <clears throat> it's kind of functionally, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, what's going on in that system. I think if, if it's the saturation question first, maybe, um, I think if people are honest about the research, they'll say we don't know yet. Um, I, I think that's where it was left in the Stanley and Roundtree paper from Michigan State last year. There's some people that believe strongly that soil will saturate and then you're done. Um, and um, I think there's some intriguing evidence to suggest it may not be so simple. Um, I also have some pretty strong views that say that the conventional understanding of how soil organic matter accumulates in soil are um, incomplete, I think is the best way to think of it. Um, and I, I guess it kind of comes from my petroleum background where we used to have fixed rocks volumes that we would extract dead carbon from. Um, and sometimes we would deal with compaction, but um, what's going on when we're putting carbon into soil is not as simple as like organic matter filling up the tiny little holes that we call pores between the existing solid materials in soil. What's really and necessarily going on is the whole thing is being inflated. That's why when you go out and you see kind of what that so-called cottage cheese soil, it's a lower density. Mm -hmm. um, what that, um, if you just kind of think from a physics perspective and mass balance, what it necessarily implies is that the original soil volume is inflating. So it's, it's, it's one of these funny things that I've learned in soil health where I kind of take what I always believe to be true in the dead carbon world of oil and gas, and I just hold it up to a mirror and the opposite is true um, here. And that is in the process of putting carbon back into soil, we necessarily inflate it. We have to inflate it. Otherwise what we'd find is we, like Gabe Brown's famous soil in North Dakota would turn into granite over time, right? Because you would take something that's already pretty hard and make it harder by putting more mass into it. Um, and because of that, that kind of answers the second part of the question. Um, I've done some theoretical work and tied it with experimental stuff and I've got it out there for challenge with some of um, 
my my peers and colleagues, um, because I think I think the necessary implication of that is once you have this kind of inflating soil mindset and model for what you're doing, then kind of what is the peak changes, right? I mean, literally the sky becomes the limit, but in, in reality, what's happening is you've got this competing tension between upward growth of soil and uh, downward growth of roots, right? And those, there's an interplay between those things. So if you wanna keep building carbon over time, you have to have deeper and deeper roots uh, in order to be able to tap deeper and deeper soils. Um, I also think it's, it's suggested to me strongly, we don't have any papers or anything to, to um, illustrate this yet, but I just kind of, to me, it's just physics. Um, is the only way you can effectively have an inflation process going on in the soil is even though when I answered that question earlier about um, carbon being pumped into the soil through this exchange of root exudates with microbes in the soil, um, there's a necessary critical process of all the other scales of life in that food pyramid, constantly churning the soil in order to keep it moving upward. If, if you've ever watched one of those time-lapse photos of worms, um, <coughs> Turning soil on the internet, um, you'll see this kind of happening. That they're 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 bringing bits of leaf down into the soil, but they're bringing bits of soil back up to the surface. There's this recycling going on. In oil and gas, we used to call that bioturbation, and it was a bad thing. It was a good thing. It was a good way to destroy what would otherwise be a good petroleum reservoir. But in the earth, it's a good thing. I, I get back to this thing of holding it up to a mirror uh, again. Um, to, to make it work. So I, I think the inflating model of soil is not fully appreciated yet. We don't have a lot of good data to document it, um, but it's something I've certainly uh, raised and um, I try to promote and, and uh, you know, share with people whenever I get the chance, because I think what it suggests is that soil saturation may be a little bit more complicated. I think in reality, what we'll see is there's no doubt that integrated soils, you can build soil uh, carbon quickly early and then it will plateau but i don't think it necessarily has to go to zero i think what we'll see is that it's just the rate of growth will slow down um, in time so hope that it helps answer the question even though it's not a definitive answer it's just the state of where the science is well one way that i've come to, to think about restoring uh, topsoil uh, in, in in some circumstances it can happen very quickly especially when you're starting out i've spoke with alan williams about this and and he said that he often sees examples where with proper grazing, uh, at least in the early years, they can get an inch or more of uh, topsoil uh, formation per year, which is quite remarkable. Uh, this probably is not a very good analogy, but I think of it almost as like a slow motion Jiffy Pop popcorn, you know, where, you know, gradually yeah. the goals are yeah. expanding. I, I like it. We'll, we'll call it the Jiffy Pop model. I think that's good. Um, and, and I think, by the way, um, you know, there's um, people talked about the churning, the massaging of uh, ruminant hooves on the landscape. That's a part of this process too. Um, and and if you don't have that live animals, you can't, in other words, you can't come across a landscape with a lawnmower and achieve the same thing you can with a ruminant that's churning. You know, even in micro environments, um, um, I, it didn't really hit me until maybe two years ago when I happened to be um, on a regenerative farm, in this case, it was in Alabama, really high clay rich soil had been a particularly wet winter and just all the micro pocking, uh, you know, micro footprints going on that were serving as little ponding mm -hmm. systems. Um, I just think that's an important part of the ecology. Once again, I kind of stand back in awe and wonder at how all these pieces of nature work together in order to achieve its overall outcome, which to me remains um, increasing the ability of an ecosystem to capture, capture more and more solar energy over time. Thank you. Uh, uh, Russ, let me uh, jump in here for a second on that and thank you um, for that answer and thank you, Carl, for that question. Um, I, I sort of think of think of it like this. I imagine that the saturation is when we get back to 270 parts per million CPU, you know, which is uh, a CPU, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, CPM. CPM. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I got computer on the brain. Anyway, um, it, you know, I mean that. You know, what's funny about that problem when we're 
when we've actually started to lower uh, the carbon levels in the atmosphere. I mean, I agree with you completely, Seth. This is a problem. Let's hope we're in a position where we can worry about it someday. Right now, it's just not an issue. Yeah, I mean, we've well, the soils have lost so much carbon already for millennia. I mean, even long before uh, modern, you know, times. I mean, soil's been losing carbon for thousands of years through agriculture. So let's just do everything we can to restore it. And um, and then even just something about, you know, the S curve, well, it sort of maxes at a certain um, <clears throat> organic matter content. You know, that may be true at that first six levels or so, but the whole depth of the topsoil itself can continue to be growing. So even though it might max out at 5% SOM or 8 or whatever, the whole profile, the whole Correct. It could 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 be going on indefinitely. So um, it, it's really a non-issue. We obviously just have to be restoring soil. Well, and I think it's a really good, interesting science. I think we're going to learn a lot in that science. I, I, I think the constraints will be this interplay between upward growth and root depth um, in time. And I like the Jiffy Pop model. It's a good one um, to think of it. But you just have to think of soil is is not like filling a fixed bathtub that's only so deep. It's about growing the bathtub, if you will. Now, um, Gary has a question. Um, he says, David Johnson and Gay Brown see an explosion in carbon sequestration when their yeah. organic matter reached 3%. So that seems to be sort of a, a critical sort of takeoff number. Um, their sequestration went up five times. What have you seen on your farms? Well, um, so Gabe is still, um, you know, even after, um, you know, he's been famous for a little while here. He's still kind of Michael Jordan to um, everybody else playing, uh, you know, A-grade basketball or something. So, um, and I, I I don't know. I mean, I know David and, and Gabe pretty well. Um, and I, I don't know that it's necessarily like 3% was a critical point or not. It might be. Um, but I think if you follow Gabe's journey, he was a really good regenerative experimenter and he had kind of gotten it up to 3% organic matter with some various practices. And then kind of everything started to fall into place uh, when he was about that point. And then it really accelerated quickly, kind of post 2007, if I remember the dates right of, of when it took off. So exactly, you know, because he was co-evolving practices and the land he was working with was getting better in the process, what was in there. Now, conceptually, I can make an argument that indeed you kind of got to get the soil ecological system working before it will spring into practice and, and really um, accelerate. So there may be some of that in there, but uh, again, an interesting question. Right now, I I look forward to um, uh, more, uh, the more people we have studying, um, uh, Gabe's place to document what's going on, the more we're going to learn and other ranchers as well. So, um, because I, there's just way more that we don't know than what we do know at this point. Also, let me put in a pitch for Soil for Climate. Um, I did an interview with Gabe earlier um, yep. this year and it's on the Soil for Climate um, Facebook group and page. And if you just Google Gabe Brown or videos, just click the videos link. Uh, we did a very good web webinar with him, and we took questions, and it, it was a lot of fun. So, so definitely uh, check that out. Um, we have a, a question from Artie says, uh, "Will there be much information provided on ranchers, or would they choose to be private?" I'm assuming he's talking about the ranchers that are participating in the Audubon Society Conservation Ranching Program. Um, well, it's always entirely up to them. Um, uh, we, we hope to make all these regenerative ranchers famous so everybody can be like Gabe um, and be on a Wheaties box, if you will. Um, and so if you go to our Balloon SB um, website where we have our farmers and ranchers, our first ranchers, we have little short profiles of each one up there. You know, we're startups, so they're fairly simple. Um, but um, yeah, so so we would like them to be public, but if they're not comfortable being public, then they can certainly stay private. That's it's not like a requirement in order to sell beef to us. We have to be able to disclose things about you. That's we're we're just not gonna not gonna go there. Um, but um, but but assuming that they do, or or that some of them, you know, do want to be known, 
Um, I mean, I think that's exciting. I mean, that's the ultimate. Yeah, that's what we want. And so far, it's more a matter of uh, just, you know, writing something up and making it visible. And um, again, we want to make them rock stars. Uh, and, you know, the, the farmers and ranchers of regenerative agriculture, they're the heroes. Um, uh, folks like me, I'm happy to stay in the background and 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 just, uh, you know, if, if we can find a way to sell their beef and engage consumers in a story of food that healed themselves and the planet at the same time, and they all learn to, um, you know, love their ranchers more, um, it would be a very, very good thing. Well, you know, um, uh, seeing as we're on this thread, I have a, a vision for the future I'd like to share. And that's that when you walk into a supermarket, um, the, 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 the rows um, are labeled by how much carbon, what, by what the carbon footprint is. <laughs> All right. So on one side of the supermarket is everything that's polluting the environment. And on the other side of the supermarket are things that are drawing down. And that's how you shop. That's just it. Okay. Yeah, it's a fun thought experiment and it is a corollary to that. It's not the cow, it's the how thing, right? So the, 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 the corollary is that the how matters, right? And it really doesn't meeting, matter whether you're eating broccoli or bananas or beef, um, how that broccoli, bananas and beef was produced. That's what matters. Um, now, if, if you're in the grasslands of America, you want to be using ruminants in that system somewhere. Now you can grow other things. If you're in a rainforest, you don't want to be uh, in the, in the beef business so much as you might be in the banana business. And there's a lot of regenerative ways to produce bananas. So if there were a way to articulate that in the grocery store at some point, that would be fun. We're, it, it's way, um, for what it's worth, I mean, I'm pretty deeply involved in the science and of course come from the measurement, um, in the well-funded industry of oil and gas to measure carbon where it's direct profitability. This is harder than most people think to ac accurately quantify and communicate carbon in a highly variable environment. So um, I think it's a really good vision, um, but I'm also cautious about getting my expectations up that we're gonna be able to put that carbon label on a, a box of Cheerios or a pound of beef uh, anytime soon. I think it's gonna take us a while. There's some exciting things going on, but it's gonna, it's gonna take a while. Well, you know, it, 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 it will, of course, but th this is the future that, that we're looking toward. And, and I actually think it will be done, it can be done through proxies, like you say, through bird counts. Yeah, so it basically the bird becomes an intermediate proxy. It's legitimately a treasure, a conservation goal in its own right, but it's also a surrogate measure for the many other things happening in the ecosystem. So I'll take it for now. And, and, you know, and, and also that can be correlated with just with ground temperatures. I mean, you know, with satellites or drones, they can just accurately assess what the ground temperature is um, in an area that's doing one type of land management versus another. You see a difference in temperature. Yeah, I think, I think this is an example of tech. I mean, I think as a science and technology guy, I think it's really, um, technology still applies. This isn't about like going back to some golden age that's free of tech and we're all running around in loincloths <laughs> hunting. <laughs> this, this is... But we're gonna use tech differently. And I think pioneers like Richard Teague have shown us the way um, that instead of trying to use technology to cheat, trick or manipulate nature, we use technology to observe nature. So satellites and sensors and all this kind of stuff is gonna be really, really important in the future of regenerative agriculture in my view. Um, it's just, we're using it humbly to understand what nature does so we can help her do it better instead of trying to figure out how to beat her at her own game. That's just a fool's game. Right. Now, Russ, um, we've got another question, and then I want um, you to do another pitch for Boone's Beef. I actually took a screenshot of it while you were talking, and I'll load that. Okay. Um, and then we could start to wrap up. But uh, James is asking, how does the soil grow in depth, assuming no erosion? So it's back to this Jiffy Pop thing that, that Carl mentioned. Um, which is if you just imagine uh, like a, a glass of sand and if you were going to try to get carbon into it, in order to make room for the carbon, you have to push the grains of sand just a little bit further apart because um, your alternative would be to put carbon, solid carbon between all the holes in the grain of sand. And at some point that grain of sand would be like granite. It would be hard. It would be solid. Um, and, and this is where I was mentioning earlier, I think there's an important role for all the different scales of microbiology to macrobiology that are constantly um, 
eating and interacting with each other that are constantly kind of moving. If you can kind of think of uh, nematodes uh, moving around in a way that they shoulder around a grain of clay or sand or silt um, and a root goes into that space and exudes some carbon, that what you get is this kind of breathing earth where it's more like um, uh, flesh or tissue than a fixed solid thing. I, I, I like the Jiffy Pop metaphor. It works for me, Carl, because I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. I don't think anybody, maybe young folks don't even know what that is anymore, but um, it's kind of the same thing. In order, the Jiffy Pop, for those that don't know it, is you started with popcorn and you put it on the stove and as the corn popped, it got bigger and this aluminum foil lid got popped up like a, like a hat or a hood. And that's kind of what's going on as you build organic matter in soil is that you're, you're um, moving the original grains further and further apart to make room for more and more carbon. And necessarily, I don't think, um, I don't know that many people necessarily think of this. Popped up. This is your first principle um, physics. It's just mass balance. I mean, the Greeks would have been able to get their minds around this concept. There's no special relativity required to, or new theory of biology to understand this process. It's a necessary condition in order to grow organic matter in soil. I, I seem to recall having heard, an, I think it was an interview with Gabe Brown or possibly it was something I read in his book, Dirt to Soil. Um, but it was an estimate that his soil is, at least in some of the cases where he's got incredibly high soil organic matter, up to 70% air, which is why when he walks on the field, it is just such a spongy feeling. I, I don't know if you can verify or confirm that. That's about right. Um, and indeed, that's what you'll feel in a regenerative pasture. Um, so in oil and gas, we would call that property porosity. Um, mm -hmm. And what you'll see, um, I mean, we do have some advanced sensors for measuring carbon in other conditions, and it's kind of, in my oil field eyes, see things differently. But, um, you know, you'll find topsoil probably in the 40 to 50% kind of porosity to start with. And as you um, build organic matter, the porosity goes up. That means it's becoming less dense. Um, and, if, and unless you have some sort of nuclear reactor in the ground that's like destroying mass, um, necessarily it means the original mass is getting spread further and further apart. So you got more mass over a larger space and even the density at any given space, point in the space is lower. And that, that's what leads to this overall inflation effect. And the soil gets stickier the more carbon you have in it as well. And that well, helps retain their shapes. And yeah, it's not as much. I mean, you can have a pretty well-retained shape sand as well. That's with no organic matter, but it it retains water and chemicals and all the um, the surface of all the organic matter becomes important exchange sites for all the ions that plants need to grow the nutrients, and so that aggregate system really becomes a highly functioning system in that process. That's right. Oh, lost you, Seth. Hey. You're, you lost your audio. Okay, I was on mute. Okay, there we go. All right, anyway, so uh, Russ, thank you. We want to start to wrap up. Um, and I noticed James had just posted a link to the, the Audubon Society, right. um, which, which is great. So why don't we um, uh, put up a slide from your website and, and just recap again a little bit of what you said at the onset about uh, uh, Blue Nest. Uh, beef and your relationship with the Audubon Society, and then and then we'll have closing words. Okay, and I'm going to even um, point to James' last question there because James put up the um, where to buy products page. So um, Audubon started this program with farmers and ranchers to get certified so they can put that green seal on and sell their beef. And so Gabe Brown's ranch is an Audubon certified ranch. Corner Post Meats in Colorado is a certified ranch. Uh, um, you can uh, prairie um, pasture, prairie bird pastures in Missouri. Um, and, and so there are a number of local and regional outlets for beef coming from particular ranches. And what we're trying to do with Blue Nest is complement those folks uh, by bringing a solution that's accessible to consumers nationwide with a simple uh, click of a button and the convenience of a monthly subscription service. Um, if you, I guess this is a screenshot, Seth, so you can't scroll down, but if you go to bluenestbeef.com, 
and scroll down on that page, you'll learn a little bit about our uh, beef. We're offering two products at the moment, a mix of steaks, roasts, and ground beef, and a pure ground beef box. You can get it delivered either monthly, bi-monthly, or every third month, so quarterly, um, uh, according to the consumption habits in your household. Um, and it's really that simple. Um, you know, buy the beef and have the confidence it's coming from a ranch that's been produced in a way that um, is truly regenerative and, and you can enjoy the convenience of a box that shows up um, on your doorstep and um, tastes good when you eat it. Um, okay, Russ, thank you. And um, I also want to put in a pitch for uh, Russ Concert's new company, Boones uh, Beef. It, it really is defining a new, a new paradigm, if you will in in sourcing food that is claiming to be regenerative um if not verifiably of soil although it will be of birds <laughs> with the audubon society itself and you know what better verification than you can get than that and uh i heard russ make the, the comment earlier uh, what's good for the herd is good for the bird <laughs> and then I, you know, I said birds vote with their wings. Um, one of the things I've come to really like about this is um, anytime humans invent a rule, some other human tries to figure out a way to break it, but birds don't lie. Um, birds um, are just a ruthlessly objective sensor for what's a healthy ecosystem and what's not. So if you have a, if you have a farmer or ranch that's truly regenerative, you should expect that the ruthless objectivity of wildlife will um, vote with its wings or its feet. I mean, certainly plenty of stories, other things than just birds. Uh, birds are very noticeable, but we notice the increase in pollinators, dragonflies and butterflies. We notice deer coming back to pastures. Uh, birds are um, uh, meaningful and significant and visible, and they're already appreciated by most people. I mean, who doesn't like birds? Um, so um, ho hopefully, um, that the story of birds um, allows us to engage with people in a way that's accessible and meaningful to them, but opens the door to a bigger story over time. Right. And, and I also loved what you said earlier. Uh, the treasure is the measure. Yeah, well, the birds are both the treasure and the measures. So the treasure means they're a legitimate conservation goal. And the measure means they're a, a surrogate metric for the other good things going on in the ecosystem that all starts with the food pyramid that's below the ground. So that's where the soil carbon comes in, right? If you don't have healthy soil that's building organic matter, you will not have, ultimately you cannot have healthy habitat for wildlife. Right, and and of course we know that uh, the soil carbon testing, you know, is ongoing and um, and 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 we, we look forward to seeing, to seeing, to seeing the, the results of that. Um, you know, w without, without doubt, um, you know, we're gonna see that the soil carbon is going to be best in the places where um, this type of conservation ranching is going on. Um, so that's exciting. Um, uh, Carl, yeah, let's ask, let's just make final um, questions or comments now. Carl, go ahead. Sure. I would like to thank Russ uh, for being on this uh, initial broadcast of Soil for Climate TV. And uh, in particular, the point that you just made about how this proper grazing restores ecosystems so that all wildlife can thrive. It's not just about the cows and the birds, but um, literally so that nature can can thrive in all of its different forms. So mm -hmm. I'll with that. Yep, that's the idea. All right, thank you. Oh, and then uh, one other thing, um, excuse me. Russ has kindly offered um, yeah. to set up a, um, um, a, a, a code uh, soil for climate code when you go to his website and uh, and when you order um, the beef there's a coupon code where if you type soil for climate um, you'll get a certain discount and, and soil for climate is a nonprofit organization will get a, a small amount of money but but nonetheless you know you'll be helping us that that's not set up yet um, the coupon code is set up we're still working to set up the 
but but uh, indeed, it's just soil for climate. Um, if uh, people in this group go to our page and check out, you'll get a fifteen percent discount on your first month's box. Okay, and then and then once I do the logistics of getting that set up with our bank account, and you'll, and you'll see a payment as well, so we can help fund soil for climate with uh, beef uh, that does good things for birds. Right, so so it's perfect. I'll, I'll make a a formal announcement about that when I actually have that accounting set up. But anyway, it's exciting. We're all helping each other restore the earth and get the right narrative out there and be viable in the process. Okay, Russ, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure uh, talking to you. Thank you. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.